Well, turn your Bibles this morning to the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 2. I've been doing a series as of late called Under Construction. And as you're finding your way there, I, I heard a story when I was uh, in Dallas, went to pick my wife up from her trip for Indonesia. She got back home safely. But I was talking to someone in the Bass Pro Shop. How many guys like the Bass Pro Shop? Yeah, it's a guy thing. It's a girl thing, too? Okay, it's a people thing. Excuse me. Well, anyway, the guy said, you know, there was a preacher and a lawyer that were deer hunting. And they both shot at this deer. I mean, it was a huge deer. I mean, a trophy rack. And, of course, they get up there. The deer's dead. And they're having this big fight. Who killed it? The preacher or the lawyer? Well, anyway, they had to call the game warden. He was nearby. The game warden came. He looked at the deer. He looked it over. And he said, the preacher did it. And the lawyer said, well, how do you know that? He said, well, the bullet went in one ear and out the other. So it had to be the preacher. So some of you still just getting it there. Okay. So hopefully, if you just put one finger in your ear this morning, hopefully, as we open the Bible, it'll get in there and stay in there. Praise the Lord. All right. Nehemiah chapter 2. Hey, I'm real excited about the fall. It is just, praise the Lord, the heat will break in just a few weeks. But you know what else? Spiritual things just begin to take off. Thank God for summers and fun, but your spiritual life can go to a whole new level. And one of the things I'm really excited about in the days ahead, we're really going to become more intense in terms of what we're doing in smaller groups of people. And what we do on Sunday morning is great. We're going to start a Saturday night service, September 18th at 6 o'clock. That's, that's a great thing. But I'm telling you, there's a dynamic that, ha- dynamic that happens when a handful of people get together. You share life together. You become friends. Somebody knows when you're struggling. Somebody can pray for you. You can ask questions, that whole dynamic. Well, guess what? To have groups like that, you've got to know how to lead them. And I'm so convinced that the value of small group relationships that I'm going to be teaching a class myself on Wednesday nights coming up starting September 15th. And if you're here and you'd like to learn how to lead people like that, how to develop a small group, be an assistant, do it one day, I want you to, to make a little note that September 15th and we'll start right here on a Wednesday night. Nehemiah chapter 2, this series under construction has been kind of a picture of what's going on in the road work out besides us. How many know lots of activity going on out there? The roads were okay several years ago, but guess what? They're going to make them better. But construction sometimes has to, I mean, you've got roads going every which way. I don't always know where to turn on those roads. I say, honey, I guess is it. Here we go. There's no sign. The road that was there last week is not there this week. But when it's finished, I mean, it'll be better. But guess what? God wants to do some construction in your life. How many know God wants to do some construction in America? How many know America is crumbling at the edges? America needs to be rebuilt. You know, our church is under construction. So this kind of picture in the book of Nehemiah, it's a, it's a picture, it's a metaphor of rebuilding that God wants to do in our lives. And the book of Nehemiah is basically is about this one guy, his name's Nehemiah, and he went back to the city of his birth. He was a slave. But the king actually let him go back, and he rebuilt walls around this great city, walls that would protect them, walls that would define them. And I want you to see this building project is something that God is doing in us. Now, last week's message, we basically talked about this statement, that it's not enough just to believe the right thing. How many know you've got to act on what you believe? In other words, let's say you're having financial problems and you you go to a class and they teach you how to make a budget. Well, how many know that class didn't solve your problems? You've got to go home and act on what you learn, make a budget, and then start living that way before you see yourself being able to get out of debt. So how many know believing alone is not enough? You've got to take some deliberate actions and steps. 
And, of course, that's all on our, on our website uh, if, if you missed it. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 10, or verse 3. I said to the king, why should my face be sad when the city, that's Jerusalem, the place of my father's graves, is in ruins? Its gates have been destroyed by fire. The king said to me, well, what are you asking for? What are you requesting? And I said to the king, send me back there, send me to Judah, that I may rebuild it. In verse 10, though, it's interesting. He has in his mind now, he's going to go back and do a good thing for God. He's going to do a work for God in this building. But verse 10, a guy named Sanballat and another guy named Tobiah, they heard it. Now, notice what it said. It displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Now, I want you to think about the picture. Here's a guy trying to do something good for God's people, but not everybody is going to like it. You're going to have, and here's the word I'm going to look at this morning. The word is opposition. Can you say that with me? Opposition. Whenever you set out to do something good for God, in other words, a building project, a construction project, whether it's your family, your business, your nation, your church, you're going to have opposition when you're doing things for God. It's just the way the world works. It's like construction problems. Anyone ever done any plumbing at home? You know, you replace that drain under the sink, you get the new sink in, it says, honey, come take a look, and you turn it on, and guess what happens? Drip, drip, you got a problem. Or maybe you're building a house. How many know that's a challenge? The workers don't show up on time. They order the wrong part, and you get ready to put it in. There's a deadline, and it's the wrong. How many know you have problems in construction? Well, listen, here's the deal in the Christian life. Anyone that wants to do anything significant for God, anyone that wants to live for God, you're going to face opposition. I'm thinking of Penny Hiller. Penny's a, a missionary. Stand up, Penny. I'm going to embarrass you. Come on, stand up. How many years ago did you set out to go on the mission field? In the year two, so ten years ago, she left, she, was, she had a master's degree, she was in education in town, and she said, I felt God called me into the ministry. And guess what? She hadn't had a problem since. <laughs> Got your attention, didn't it? No, you face opposition. And opposition is, though we don't like it, it's often a reminder to us that we're going the right direction because there's some static here. Now, for example, let's say, let's say uh, these kids that were on the stage, they've just been to two or three days, they're excited. Well, let's say this kid wants to go to school and start a Bible club, a prayer club. They have a constitutional right to do it, but in some schools across America today, there's still opposition. You may want to do it, but the principals may say, no, we don't do that here. Well, how many know that's a right that we have as Christians, and we'll help our students so they can be able to do that? Let's say you're trying to work on your marriage and you want to build a Christian family. You want to do things right. You know, you realize you've done some things wrong. You want to build your marriage. But guess what? There's a third party that's trying to steal your spouse away from you. How many know you've got opposition? Yeah, you, you've got a problem. You've got a problem. You know, there's a Greek Orthodox church that was in uh, New York City. Perhaps you've heard about this this week as our nation has been debating whether a mosque should be built near ground zero. I mean, it's everywhere in the news. Our president's taken a position. Everybody's taken a position. But do you know those city councilmen said it's okay to build the mosque, but do you know they have been trying for a number of years now to rebuild that Greek Orthodox church, and the city won't let them do it. That's interesting. Yes on a mosque, no on rebuilding a church. Guess what they've got? They've got opposition. See, 
Uh, maybe you're a Christian businessman or businesswoman, and you really have dedicated your business for God. You want your business to be able to help missions work and help the poor and do great things. Well, guess what? You started out with a great intention, but there's lawsuits against you. The competition is somehow cheating. They're lying. They're not doing right. You've got employee problems. Guess what you've got? You've got... Yeah. So the book of Nehemiah, what we're going to look at today is we're going to see how some people will stand against you when you're trying to do a work for God. And I think there may be a voice within my voice this morning helping you to maybe filter through some opposition in your life and how you need to respond to it. Because it's out there, praise the Lord, and we need to know what to do to get to the other side on it. So let's uh, look at this this morning as we talk about construction problems, and this will be part one. We'll probably do this a a couple weeks. Chapter 2, verse 19, let's just call it opposition scene one. Because there are about five or six different instances in this book. The book's about 12 chapters or so, but yet there's six different times where a guy named Sanballat, Tobiah, and another one named Geshem are going to stand and they're going to try to stop the work. And each of their strategies is a little bit different. How many know it starts out with words and it escalates where they're trying to kill them? I mean, it's a pretty serious thing that's going on in this book. But these people are doing a work for God and a journey for God, and they're not going to let anything stop them. So look at verse 19. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, and these are their their, their tribal identities uh, is an Ammonite, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us. We're going to talk about that. And they said, what is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king?" Let's pause right there and see this first type of opposition. First of all, these guys, Sanballat, was, he was like the governor. All three of these men were in political places of power. Sanballat was the political official of the region of Samaria. He was like a governor. Tobiah was a representative of the Persian king. The Persian empire was the ruling dominant force in the world at that time. And he was an ambassador or an emissary from the king. And lastly, this man named Geshem was an Arab ruler. He was of the region of Qadar. So you've got these three political people. And here, all Nehemiah is trying to do is establish the kingdom of God. He's trying to live God's way. He's trying to do what's right. He's trying to help the people of God, and all of a sudden, he's got plenty of opposition. Well, let me tell you this. I know this from experience, and I know it biblically, that anyone committed to advance the kingdom of God, anyone that wants to do right in God's sight will face, guess what? Yeah, you can just count on it. Jesus said, in this world, you'll have tribulation, hardship, but you be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 2, 2, Paul the apostle, talking about the city of Philippi, Now, you would think if you were going to a region and extend the hands of God, that you were going to go and bring the message of life and truth that could get people to heaven, you would think everybody would say, bring it on, right? Not so. He said, we've previously suffered and been insulted, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of, say it again, strong opposition. And everywhere Paul went, he faced this. He'd face it from religious people, and sometimes he would face it from heathen, pagan people. But they all were wanting to stop him for a variety of reasons. Now, certainly you understand, and I'm not going to spend much time here, but there is a force behind the force of opposition. How many know that? The Bible says our struggle in Ephesians 6 is not against flesh and blood. In other words, when you are living the Christian life, doing the work of God, people are not your problem. It says, our struggle is not against these people, flesh and blood, but against powers, principalities, spiritual wickedness in high places, which means there's a demonic strategy 
I mean, for example, let's say in some parts of our culture today, if you wear a pro-life shirt to school in some school districts, they will either make you take it off and turn it inside out or send you home. It's like the free speech rights of children are suppressed in some school districts across America. They're having to get attorneys for their religious freedoms. Come on. Because our world is standing against it, trying to stop what we're doing on this journey for God. And there is a spiritual force that's behind it. We don't have to get spooky or weird because what we're dealing with, though, is we're dealing with the people, but there's a pressure behind those folks. Now, this strategy of opposition, let's kind of go back to verse 19 and let's talk about it and see what they did. Now, you see the word where it says they jeered at us and they despised us. That means they mocked them, they ridiculed them, they made fun of them, they laughed at them. In other words, they were these basically powerless people and didn't have a lot of resource or money, and they're basically ridiculing them and said, listen, who are you to be able to do anything? You're not educated, you don't have money, you're old, you're this, you're that, and they're kind of picking on them. And you know, sometimes all it takes to stop us is for somebody just to laugh at us. You heard me talk to those kids about praying in school over their meal. I, let me challenge you to do the same thing. You don't have to raise your hand, but do you pray over your meal in public? Now listen, I, 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 you do it not as, not as a religious duty. You thank God, which is a dutiful thing. You bow your head to honor God. But guess what else you do when you're doing that? You become a light and a witness. Well, I can tell you in school when that's happening, three things will occur, three responses. Most kids in the room will just stare and do nothing. Some kids will come up later and say, hey, I'm a Christian too. And another group of people will laugh at them. You show up in the locker room at a football game and you have a Jesus t-shirt on, somebody will laugh at you. See? And the way that you know whether you're going to be, uh, what you're going to do with this opposition, the next day, are you going to wear another Jesus shirt or are you going to wear just a white t-shirt? See, that same pressure of laughter, because nobody likes to be made fun of, right? I mean, let's get real this morning. Nobody likes to be made fun of, to be, to be picked on. But listen, if you're going to be a Christian, you've got to get in the battle. Not everybody will like you. And that doesn't mean you don't like them back. You love them back. But you can't let words stop you. Now, verse 19, it gets a, it gets a little worse. Now, now, you're going to find in the next two months, you're going to dread turning the television on because we're going to be inundated with TV ads. And these TV ads are going to depict the opposition as the devil himself. I mean, it's like they're running against the Antichrist. Because what they're going to do is this next thing. Look at verse 19 again. After they laughed at him and mocked them, they said, what are you doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Now, think about this. What they're doing in this particular case is they're questioning their motives and making a false accusation. Questioning their motives and basically lying about them. Now, here's what will happen to you from people that oppose you. They'll ask you why you're doing that. And they'll try to suggest to you that it's for less than the right reason. They'll make fun of you. They'll lie about you. They'll tell lies about you. See, because they're questioning what's going on in your heart. Now, this idea of rebelling against the king, I mean, that's a pretty serious threat. Because in their day, listen, the king was a sole monarch. You didn't have rights as we do today. If you rebelled against the king, you would be beheaded. And the king himself wouldn't do it. The local governor would have the right to do that. He'd cut your head off or he'd imprison you. So this was a real serious threat. You know, every year in election season, I get a letter from a man named Barry Lynn. He represents a group called Americans United for the Separation of Church and State. 
He calls himself a minister, but he basically scares preachers to try to silence them from speaking the truth in, into issues and being a prophetic voice into our nation. And it's just out there. It's a veiled threat to try to stop you with words. Now, I want to tell you, they're all out there, whether it comes from a friend, a government agency, an attorney, however they may come in our world today, a gang member. But opposition will try to be there to silence your voice, to lie about you. And that's what these political ads will do. They'll take something usually out of context and paint a picture of the candidate that oftentimes is not true to smear them. And that's the perspective. I hope you're wise enough to know that you look at a person's record to see how they voted. That's a good place to say amen. Look at a record to see how they voted, not just listen to what the television ad says. I'm insulted by some of the ads, if I can digress just a moment, because this person who voted one way tries to present themselves another way on the television and in the mail-outs that come in your mailbox, so you'll think they believe like you do when they vote just the opposite. We'll talk more about that later. This is not the first time this happened in the Bible. You know David's brother did the same thing to him. Now, David, what was the defining moment in David's life when he did what? When he slew Goliath. So here you've got this kid. He shows up. He doesn't really know what's going on, but Goliath is there intimidating the people. In 1 Samuel 17, 28, David's oldest brother, Eliab, and can I tell you this? Sometimes the people closest to you will try to stop you. Sometimes those that are closest to you will oppose you. His brother Eliab talked with the soldiers. He was angry with David. So he said, David, why did you come here? See, here's the question again, questioning motives. Who's taking care of those few sheep of yours in the desert? And now he's, he is, he's demeaning him. He's mocking him. He's lying about him. I know you're, how proud and wicked you are at heart. You came down here just to stop the battle. If David had been intimidated by his brother's words, what did he have said? Oh, I'm going to go tell daddy. But he didn't. He said, I can say whatever I want to say. And he talked to somebody. And before you know it, he's out there. Goliath's coming at him. And he picks up a rock. And he does like that and goes, bango. And before you know it, this little teenager is on the way to be the king. And he became the greatest king in Israel's history. But words could have stopped him. And I'm going to suggest to you, oftentimes it doesn't take a lawsuit to shut you down. It's just the words of the right person that can get at you. And it's a tactic of opposition. Now look at verse 20 of that same chapter in Nehemiah 2. This is how Nehemiah responded when they made fun of him and they, they, they accused him and they, they lied about him. He said, verse 20, I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. We, his servants, will arise and build. In other words, faith rose up in his heart. And this is what has to define you and I, is faith and not fear. It's like the first thing out of his mouth was not to try to work a compromise, explain or defend himself. The first thing he did was make a declaration that God, I'm on God's side doing the work of God and God is with me. Now that's a powerful thing. I, I will suggest to you that every great person in the Bible had this mark about their life. They were a great person of faith. They believed God in spite of what was going on. For example, Moses was one such person. Hebrews 11:27 says it was by faith that Moses left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. Now listen. He kept right on going because he kept his eyes on the one who is invisible. Think about that. How do you keep your eyes on the one who's invisible? Doesn't make sense. But somehow faith sees what these eyes don't see. 
Faith sees what this mind cannot reason. See, faith believes that in spite of what we may see with our eyes, no matter how big Goliath is or how strong Sanballat's, Tobias, and Geshem's are, listen, my faith tells me that God is bigger than my problem. You keep your eyes on the invisible God. And the best way I know to do that is spend some time with Him every day. Listen, before you got here this morning, I got here before anybody else. I found a quiet spot, turned the, 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 the light on, opened my Bible, and began to read from the Bible reading guide from Chronicles. And then I read from Corinthians. And I was connecting to the invisible God. And I walked around the sanctuary. And guess what? God becomes more real to you when you spend time in His presence and time in His Word. But faith is the first thing that he expressed. And notice the second thing he said. He said to these guys in verse 20 again, you've got no portion or right or no claim to us in Jerusalem. In other words, he stood up to his intimidators. He did not cave in when he was afraid. Listen now, he didn't let fear stop him. Now, how many have ever been intimidated in life? Come on, where somebody just kind of stared you down or shouted you down or cussed you down, come on, or sued you down or, or threatened you down in some way. It, it, it comes to all of us. And particularly if you're a little more tender-hearted and sensitive, it's a little more difficult to deal with that, isn't it? How many people in here want everybody to like you? Let me see your hand. Okay. How many liars in the room? Let me see your hand. Everybody wants to be liked. Now, there's a few of us that just really don't care about anything, and we have a deliverance ministry for you. But most people want people to like you. But then you get somebody in your face, like this sand battle, let them talk you down. You've got to stand against it. That's just the way it is. If they're mistreating your kid in school, guess what you're going to do? Come on, Mama Bear. You're going to go and give them some what for. If they're being unfair, and why do you do that? Because you're standing against opposition. See, and that's what you have to do sometimes, whether it's against your family. Listen, if somebody's going to be after my spouse, no, I'm going to be talking to them, not only on the phone and email and text message, but in their face saying, you better get away. You've got to stand against the opposition that's trying to undermine your life. Now, in today's world, you have to be very cautious because some of you are in a work environment. If you dared say something about of the sanctity of marriage, you could lose your job. We live in a different world today. There's kids across America can't wear pro-life shirts to school. There are teachers that can't carry Bibles in their classrooms simply on their desk to be used during break. We live in a world where we have to be wise as a serpent but gentle as a dove. But nonetheless, we have to know where we stand against opposition. Remember the old Rocky movie years ago? How many like the old Rocky movie here? Let me see your hand. Yeah, Rocky was the man years ago. Remember when he fought Mr. T? His first fight against Mr. T, you know, his manager dies, but he's a little arrogant at the time. And this intimidating man, Mr. T, you know, with the ball and the mohawk comes up to him, you know. He's, oh, what did he say to him? I pity the fool. But what, what did he say in the ring the first time? Dead meat. And Rocky just kind of dropped his head, you know, and... And he just beat him to a pulp in the first round. But he didn't let the opposition keep him down. Come on. Now, it was a movie, but it's kind of the way life works. It took him a while to get back up. But finally, he got back up and he got in the ring. Come on. This time, he was a left-hander, I think, and he was littler. And Mr. T's trying to do the same thing. I'm going to bust you up, boy. Rocky looked at him without a flinch. Go for it. <laughs> You know how it goes. 
Well, what do you do when Mr. T comes against you? Come on. He may knock you down, but listen, I'm not talking about street fighting or fighting for your bass fishing spot. I'm talking about things. I'm talking about the kingdom of God, righteousness. I'm talking about doing those things that please God. I'm talking about building the kingdom of God, rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem, helping the poor. I'm talking about things that you're trying to do that are good and right for the kingdom of God and you face opposition. Come on, don't let, them, don't, don't, don't let it stop you. Let's, let's look further this morning. Let's go to scene two. Uh, go to Nehemiah chapter four. Nehemiah chapter four. Now, there's probably about six different interchanges, and hopefully we'll pick this up again in the coming weeks. But Nehemiah chapter 4, look at verse 1. You will see as we look in this passage, every time it escalates, what starts with words making fun of them will end up with a death threat. I mean, it escalates because people of this world are motivated often by power. They're motivated by gain. They're motivated by things that, that we're not in pursuit of but are very important to them. When Sanballat, verse 1, heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. Can you say greatly enraged? Now, when you get a man that has virtually absolute power and he has military might, come on, and he's got hit men and everything else, and he gets greatly enraged at you, how many know you have a potential problem? In verse 2, he begins this whole speaking thing again in the presence of his brothers in the army of Samaria. What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish in a day? Now, somehow, this gets back to Nehemiah. Uh, will they revive the stones of the heaps of rubbish? In verse 3, now his buddy, Tobias, speaks up. And Tobias says, yeah, what they're building, if a fox goes on it, he'll break down their stone wall. Here's what I know about this. There's an escalation of the emotional intensity. And this is where you cannot back down. This is when, when they shout, they'll shout louder. When they push, they'll push harder. It's like it intensifies around you. Are you with me today? But it's particularly the words that intensify and the threats that they make. Now, this is big because it's one thing for somebody to tell you to stop. It's another thing they tell you to stop or they're going to whip your you-know-what. It's another thing if they pull out a gun. I mean, it, it, it escalates as we go in life. But I want you to focus in particular on the escalation of words and what they did. Because words have potential power to stop you. You don't believe that. You remember the story in 1 Kings 19 about Elijah the prophet? One of the greatest miracle stories in the entire Bible. Here this one man stands up there, 900 pagan prophets of two false gods. They meet on a mountain, and basically Elijah says, the God who answers by fire and consumes this sacrifice or burnt offering will recognize him as the true God and will follow him. So the, all the pagan prophets, nothing happens. I mean, nothing. Elijah simply says, God, show out. Show yourself that you're the one true God. Fire comes down from heaven. and it, I mean, it's just an incredible story. But do you know, if you kept reading that story, the very next chapter, in just the few, first few verses, there's the words of a woman that made him run away. Think about it. This guy that he'd seen fire come down from heaven, and Jezebel heard about it, and here's what she said, I'm going to kill him. Mark my words, I'm going to kill him. And the escalation, you know what this great man of God did? He ran away. Now, don't judge him too harshly because everyone in this room has someone that knows how to push your button and fear get in your life 
It could be a letter from an attorney's office. It could be a letter from the governing agency that oversees your business. Come on. It could be the school principal. It could be a coach. It could be your father-in-law. Come on. It's somebody that knows how to push a button and all of a sudden all your faith falls to the ground. And that is what the enemy will try to do is find that one person to come against you and try to stop you. Now, notice how he prayed this time. Or notice what he, how he responded this time. Oh, here's another thought. In verse 3, when Tobiah chimed in, remember, he's the second one, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. When he began to say the same thing, here's something I want you to learn from that. Just because a lot of people are against you doesn't mean they're right. Just because the number of people increase that say what you're doing is wrong doesn't necessarily make it so. Uh, there was a lot of people in Noah's day when Noah was building an ark and they were laughing at him day after day. It took him about a hundred years to build that ark. The Bible says they were laughing at him. They were mocking at him. Da, 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 da. But how many know one day Noah had the last laugh? See, when God shut the door and God caused it to rain. So even if it's a large number that stand against you, if you know you're doing the work of God, if you're not arrogant or prideful, but if you are humble and being obedient to what God is doing in this area of construction or building, you need to stand your ground, come on, and not be intimidated by many voices. Tell your neighbor he's preaching pretty good this morning. Now, look what happened in verse 4. After this, you know, verbal assault and all the things going on in their mind, they cried out to God. Now, here's their response to opposition. Look at verse 4. Hear, O our God, we're despised. And notice what they said in their prayer to God. It's pretty strong prayer. God turned back their taunts on their own heads. Give them up to be plundered in a land where they're captives. Don't cover their guilt. Don't let their sin be blotted out from your sight. Why? Because I don't like them? No. Because they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Now, it's a little question here, depending on your translations. But the more literal translations suggest that, or very clearly say, that they are provoking God. And God is angry at them. See, so here's, here's the lesson that you can learn from this. When, when you're in a situation and you're praying about the opposition... If you're genuinely doing the work of God, they're your enemy. Now, Jesus told us to do what for enemies? Love them and do what else? Pray for our enemies to bless them. You look at this guy. You look at the writings of David in the, in, in the book of Psalms when he's a man of war. It's pretty tough stuff there. How do you reconcile the two? Does that mean if you follow the teachings of Jesus, you just kind of kick back and don't care? No, I don't think so. Let me give you an example of how I interpret this. Here's how I'm praying for Ahmadinejad, the president of Iran. I mean, no, he is a madman bent on doing a little bit more than just having electricity come on for the folks. If someone had told you that they were going to kill you, don't you think you'd be ready for them or you think you'd invite them over for dinner? I think you'd probably have your gun loaded. Now, that's just my supposition as a Texan here. If somebody threatened you and said they're going to kill you, I think you'd be ready for him. Well, he's already said he's going to blow up Israel. He's already said he's going to kill him. He's going to try to kill us, the great Satan in America. So don't you think he ought to be taken pretty seriously? So how, you, how do you pray for a man like that? I'll tell you how I pray. I say, God, would you save his soul? And if he refuses to be saved, would you remove him? 
Because if Jerusalem is the apple of your eye, come on, and once again, Israel is going to be the focal point in the book of Revelation. Don't you think God's pretty concerned about what's going on over there? See, don't you think God cares about the people of Israel, the children of Israel who brought forth the Messiah, Jesus? See, so what does that mean? You, you know, I've been reading a bit lately about how Muslims are having vision all over the world. Thousands of Muslims are having dreams and visions of Jesus calling them, and they're converting to Christ in record numbers around the world. Now, you don't hear that in the public press. We're told, tolerate, tolerate, tolerate. When their psychiatrist, come on, their major at the, uh, wasn't it in Texas not too many months ago, shouts, Allah Akbar, God is great, and goes to killing people. The suicide bombers on 9-11 crash their airplanes into buildings. Allah Akbar, God is great. Come on, and they say the same thing when they test their rockets in Iran. Duh. But we just seem to say tolerate, tolerate, tolerate. You know what? Our history of America and we'd have done, we'd have tried to convert them to Christ. We'd have put, come on, the resources of the nation to try to win them to Christ. All right, just kind of think about that. Christians build more hospitals than atheists. Christians do more to help the poor around the world than any other people group. See, but when, I, but when you look at a situation like that where you have an enemy coming to oppose you, you pray for their soul, God, would you save him? Because he's only doing what a sinner does. He is blinded by the devil. Come on. He's a puppet in the hand of the devil. Would you deliver him from it? But if he's going to resist it, would you just remove him and get him out of the way? So he prayed very deliberately and succinctly to the God of heaven that God, back to Nehemiah now, that God would stop, their, stop the opposition. But you know what else it said? And let me kind of summarize this as I close here. It said, we began to build. So here's the deal. It's not enough just to pray. Punch your neighbor and tell them, it's not enough just to pray. See, remember last week I told you it's believing and acting? Well, it's, there's a time to pray and it's a time to act. And Nehemiah did both. See, they prayed, but they didn't wait for the arbitration panel to come in. They didn't wait for it all to get reconciled. He started building the wall because God had told him to do it. Now, I understand, and what I'm preaching this morning, you're going to have to kind of interpret this, the voice within the voice, and how this applies to you. But I'm telling you, this is how the man Nehemiah walked through this. And he started to do it. He didn't stop. And there's an incredible thing if you read that story. If you continued reading in those verses what Nehemiah did, he started to build. And you know what the Bible says after that? It says the people had a mind to work. See, all people are waiting for is someone like you and someone like me to bow our heads in prayer over a meal. That's all they're waiting for. All somebody's waiting for, come on, in your family, on Thanksgiving when you go home and everybody hates each other, all they're waiting for is somebody to stand up and say, I want to ask you to forgive me for what I've done to create the conflict in my home. They're just waiting for somebody to take the first step. See, opposition is all around. They're just waiting. They're just waiting for someone to stand and say, this is wrong. They're waiting for a voice to have the courage to say, listen, God's ways are true and what we're doing is wrong and God's not pleased with it. They're just waiting. And they'll follow somebody. They want to follow you. Come on. Come on. Give the Lord a big hand this morning. Let's look at what we learned this morning, and then we're going to close in prayer today. Lord willing, we'll come back to this and visit this again. First thing we saw Nehemiah did when he began to face the opposition, he started in a place of faith. And that's big. Nehemiah had faith. He believed God, and he said what he believed. So your faith is the starting place when you face something. What I do when I face opposition, I go to the place of prayer and say, Now, Lord, what am I supposed to do now? 
Because, listen, as Christians, we're not going out looking for a fight. You may used to do that when you were the man a long time ago, but listen, you're not the man anymore, okay? You're a Christian. You're not just going out looking to beat somebody up. Come on. You, this, we don't do that. But if you get in an opposition, you need to pray and ask God, say, God, what am I supposed to do here? Come on. Is this the world? Is this the devil? Is this you trying to redirect me? But, Lord, if I'm on a mission from you and I know it's a spiritual opposition, the first thing I need is faith to believe God, see that God is bigger. I'm just a willing vessel. He stood up to the opposition. When you know what you're facing is wrong, come on, Mama Bear, when they're taking advantage of your kid, you stand up for what's right. You stand up for your kid. You stood up to the opposition. He cried out to God in prayer. And that prayer couldn't just be out of a frustration prayer. It can't be out of because you just want God to make your life better. It needs to be a spirit-led prayer. You care about them. You love them. But what they're doing, they're opposing the work of God. If the million children that are going to lose their life this year to abortion could have a voice, don't you think they'd be asking you to pray? Don't you think they'd be asking you to, come on, to act? He cried out to God in prayer, and then he acted. He went forward in spite of the opposition and he wouldn't let himself be intimidated. Come on. He's like Rocky. Go for it. Praise the Lord. Give the Lord a good hand. It is good this morning, wasn't it? I want to pray for you this morning. I wonder this morning, how many of you, as I've been talking about opposition this morning, and I've been talking about things in life, whether it's your personal world, your business, our nation, our country, but you're in the middle of something and you feel some real opposition and uh, you, you really need God to give you some fresh faith. You really need God to help you. You need God to push you to the other side. You need God to give you some courage to not be intimidated. You need maybe God to help give you some discernment to know what to do. But there's some opposition in your path of the spiritual life you're living and you need God to help you. Would you just lift your hand? Let me see your hand. You need prayer. Come on, let me show you. We're going to pray for you today. We're going to help you. I'm going to help you today. I'm going to have somebody lay hands on you in just a minute. And what that means, the Bible talks about the laying on of hands in prayer. It's simply a way where one person takes another person's hand or they just lightly touch their head to believe as a point of contact that God, come on, not my words, not my touch, but God will come and help them. When we close our service, Pastor Michael invites you to come and we'll pray for you. Our prayer team will be here. As a matter of fact, if you've got any needs... If you've got any struggles in your life, if you've got anything, if you're sick and you want to be prayed for, if there's a problem, a need you have, and you want someone to pray for you, we'll do that at the end of the service so you can have all the time you need so we don't have to rush it. But before we have that prayer, I want to, I want to ask you this question today. Well, first of all, let me make a statement, then I'll ask the question. We've talked all morning about opposition and things standing in your way. But do you know the greatest battle every one of us in this room faces? Every one of us. From the kids that were on the stage to the oldest person here to the strongest to the weakest, we all face the battle against sin. And I don't mean just sin that tries to make us do bad. I mean the battle against sin that carries a judgment with it. So one day we'll have to stand before God and give an account for our life. Because do you know what? That's what the Bible teaches. The Bible calls it judgment day. When every person that's ever been born on the planet will stand before God and give an account for their life. See, the Bible teaches us what we all know is all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. How many would say, I agree with that? Yeah. How many sins does it take to make a sinner? Yeah. How many lies does it take to make a liar? Yeah. We've all sinned. We know it. Now, our world today says it doesn't matter. There's no such thing as sin. 
you've got the right to do whatever you want to. Well, okay, for their sake, I hope they're right. But if they're wrong, they're going to stand before God one day and give an account for that sin. See, the Bible says the wages or the outcome of sin is... yeah. Now, it's physical death, and when you look in the mirror, you know you're getting older. You that have got past the young curve, you know you mean? You're, if you're on the young curve up to your 20-ish, you know, if, you, you, don't, you don't realize it. But at some point, it starts to level out a little bit. And then at some point, it starts doing a nosedive. But there's a death worse than physical death. Death, in its most basic definition, means a separation. See, and in there is an eternal death where you'd be separated from God for all eternity. But I've got some wonderful news today. Jesus Christ has already fought a battle that you don't have to fight. When you look at that cross, I want you to think about the fact that Jesus Christ died on that cross to be a substitute for your sins. It simply means He died there to take your place. He died because you couldn't be good enough to get to heaven and your sin would keep you out. And if you would simply turn to follow Him, if you would believe in Him, if you would receive Him as your Lord and Savior, if you'd ask Christ to forgive, only Christ can forgive your sins. See, that's what His death on the cross is all about. But guess what you've got to do? You've got to take a step to get on His side. It's like going to battle. It's like going out to fight. You know, you've got to make the step. Say, Lord, I want you to fight for me. So I wonder if you're here today and say, Pastor, you're talking right to me now. Sin is the biggest battle of my life, and I want to pray that God would forgive my sins. I want to get on God's side right now. I want to ask the Lord to forgive me, wash my sins away, and give me a brand new start in life. For some, this may be the first time you've ever done it. But for others that are here today, maybe you made this step to Christ before, and you just kind of got, you know, it just happens. You got off base, but today you want to make a step back to Christ. You want to make sure that your sins are forgiven and you receive God's gift of eternal life. If that's you, we'd be honored to pray for you. If you're here this morning and say, Pastor, I want you to pray for me. I want to get right with God. Would you just lift your hand real quickly? Do it now. You're here today. I want to get right with God. God bless you. Give him a hand. God bless you too, dear. Somebody else. I want to get right with God. God bless you too, dear. Others that are here today, I want to get right with God today. Come on, first time or many. God bless you in the back. Give him a big hand. Somebody else today, I, I, I want to get right with God today. I want to get right with God today. All right, praise You that lifted your hands, I want you to come. We want to pray for you right now. Our prayer team is going to come. If you wanted prayer about the opposition thing, you come. Come on, let us pray for you. You lifted your hand. We, we're not going to hurt you. We're going to give you something. We're going to pray for you. We're going to talk to you. It takes guts to make a stand to the Lord. Come on, give him a big hand. Our prayer team is coming. Listen, if you raised your hand about the opposition and you want prayer that God would help you, I want you to come too. Come on, we're going to close with a prayer time today. You lifted your hand a minute ago that you wanted prayer when there's spiritual opposition in your life. Pastor Mike's going to ask you to come again. You just come. Somebody will pray for you. Amen. Our prayer team's going to be up here. If you raised your hand to ask Christ into your life, I want our altar workers just to ask him. Pastor Joe there, if you'll just wave, he's going to give you some information. So if you came up to get your life right with God, make sure you go over by the cross in just a moment, and you'll be able to get some information. But uh, let's all stand. Pastor Nick's going to sing. But I want you not to leave here if you have a need. The Bible says if two should agree as touching anything, it'll be done. And so we're going to have an altar team up here. If you want to agree on anything, if you're sick in your body, if you want more power in your life and the power of God, any kind of prayer need, uh, we'll pray for you. I'll just close in a word of prayer, and then you're welcome to worship a little bit or come to the altar. Father, I just want to declare this week, we'll not be intimidated by the enemy. We will not operate in fear, but we will operate in faith. So I just release a spirit of boldness upon this congregation in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you Wednesday night.